The singing today, as always, is so inspirational, so encouraging, and we're so delighted that God has blessed us with our voices that we can use them to express to Him the heartfelt feelings that we have, the opportunity of thanksgiving, gratitude that wells up within each of us. It is the case, as always, we're thankful again for the presence of each and every one, our membership and visitors alike, and we trust that for the next few moments as we give attention to some features of the Word of God, that we can be encouraged and edified truly in those matters which constitute the most holy faith. In Mark chapter 9, verses 49 and 50, those closing two verses of that chapter, those were the sections that Brother Wendell read for us a moment ago. It is to that I would turn your attention as you and I think about salt this morning. Salt is good according to what the Master said. I wonder what it was that Jesus described on that occasion. And how was it that He presented such a basic but yet fundamentally important lesson using the very nature and constitution of salt? Some introductory thoughts may well be in order as you consider the following thoughts with me. Might I remind us that we now, as we continue our journey through the sacred text this year, we've now read 197 chapters that's a little bit over 16.5% of the totality of the Word of God. And as we continue that journey, this week we continue in Mark, the Old Testament. We will soon be, of course, into the book of Numbers. Amazingly, as we study all of those features, Jesus directs us to consider salt this morning. Salt has had a storied history throughout the era of the world. There was a time when salt was extremely expensive. In fact, it was very difficult to, to achieve and arrive at possession of it. Quite often it was sold as caravans would make their journeys over the ancient roadways of the Middle Eastern part of the world. And quite often salt was traded as a highly prized bargaining agent. You and I today are far removed from that era and time. Salt is cheap. You can go to the grocery store and buy huge containers of it for basically just a few pennies. And yet salt, as you and I will learn today, continues to have a value far, far beyond what it costs monetarily. Jesus here expressly made usage of the word salt several times in the passage. And one of them, He expressly said that salt is good. I'd invite you to journey with me for the next little while this morning and revisit the concept of salt the attribute that it has in the Christian life, and perhaps the very reward that Jesus referenced in it in the passage before us. To do that, you'll notice at the bottom of that slide that the whole idea of the Christian life in some ways can be summarized, at least in some ways, with the attribute of salt. The lesson text first would do us well to consider. As always, we never wish to force into a passage what is not there. And it's never our desire to state what is not that which was in the mind of our Savior. For that reason, look back to the context that brought Jesus to mention salt. What was it that the Lord had been addressing that caused Him to find this the perfect opportunity to introduce the concept of salt? Beginning in Mark chapter 9, verse 38. Jesus had made reference to some attributes that were startling, almost stunning to the people of that day. It was those attributes that you'll find at the top of that slide. Rather than focusing on those miracles and rather than focusing on that which they could literally see in this life, the Lord directed their attention 
to the nature of the judgment and to impress upon them its seriousness, to impress upon them the character with which it should be approached. Jesus said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It were better for you to enter into life maimed than have two hands to be cast into hell. And as if that weren't impressive enough, then He said, if your foot causes you to offend, cut it off. It would be better to go into life halt than to have two feet to be cast into hell. And then He said in terms of your eye, if your eye causes you to stumble to offend, pull it out. It's better to have only one eye in this life than to have two perfectly healthy eyes but both cast into hell. As Jesus made those statements, can you imagine that those were not popular sermon topics? Can you imagine the audience that was there listening and hearing Him impress upon them the fact that this life and its seriousness must be looked upon in a way that causes them to consider that it would be better to have only one hand, one foot, one eye than to have two and be sent to hell? We learn, among other things, the reality of a place called hell. Though that has not been often throughout the millennia a common and very favorable subject, Jesus used it. Our Lord preached on hell, didn't He? And you'll notice He also preached here on how to avoid it. And to avoid it uses salt. You'll notice in light of the very last statements, among that which the Lord here stated, as it relates to hell, he did make reference, didn't he, that this is a place where the worm doesn't die, the fire isn't quenched. Note verse 48. As Jesus made those innocent-sounding statements, but yet so profoundly stunning, those are lessons that reverberate in your mind and mine all these centuries later. Hell is serious business. There are those who look upon it almost with a laughing character that you can't be serious. There's no place like that, some would tell us. What a shocking thing it'd be to open your eyes after death and to realize the Hadean realm one day is going to give rise to a place even worse. Those places are Tartarus and otherwise. And yet we appreciate here Jesus said, this place does exist. The Pharisees needed to know it. The Sadducees needed to know it. The Herodians needed to know it. And you'll notice after building that kind of foundation, in verses 49 and 50, Jesus had these words to say, For everyone shall be salted with fire. Everyone shall be salted with fire. The Lord had just made reference to the thoroughness of eternal judgment the characteristic of a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. This place, Jesus said, I'm telling you it exists. And now He went on to impress upon them and us this lesson. Everyone shall be salted with fire. The verb that appears in that verse literally is the verb that means to be salted. In pattern, you and I might think about a table where you salt your eggs or you salt some other particular food that's on the table. You take a salt shaker and you sprinkle salt on it. Jesus said, everyone shall be salted. And now He says, with fire. And in the verse that follows, He says, while we're on the subject of salt, salt is good. But if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will you season it? 
have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. As you and I contemplate the statement, salt is good, and as we give reflective consideration to that verse that indicates if it's lost its saltness, what's it good for? Have salt in yourselves. Jesus gave you and me a commandment. In the Greek text, that is an imperative thrusted sentence. Have salt in yourselves. He told that to me as surely as He did to you. What does it mean then to have salt in me and in you? And what ways might it be visible? And how do we know it's there? Let's begin that study and build upon it in the following way. First of all, let's do it by using some of the characteristics of table salt. Let's use them to help us appreciate what it was that the Lord was asserting here. The first thing that might be of some interest is the chemical composition of salt. We'll use that to help us appreciate the chemicals, if you please, involved in the salt to which Jesus referred. Common table salt is, in fact, a very common compound, isn't it? Can you think of a house that wouldn't have salt in it? Or can you imagine a restaurant that wouldn't make salt available? Salt is that chemical compound, sodium chloride by and large. And yet, as you think about the composition of chlorine and sodium, the commonness of it leads us to appreciate some of these opening comments. I've tried to state them in the way that you see there. The abundance of salt on this planet is truly an interesting thing. Our oceans are filled with it. There's enough salt in the ocean to easily take care of the human family's salt needs and salt demands for untold numbers of centuries. And yet, as you think about that, the land has salt in it. There are salt mines to which you can go, and you find tons and tons of salt can be excavated in a year's time. All of that leads us to think about the Bible itself mentions some places in which salt is there in abundance. And sometimes great lessons can be found in it. That Dead Sea, sometimes called the Salt Sea, there in the southern region of Canaan, is one of the saltiest bodies of water on the surface of this planet. You'll notice that Jesus, even in the vicinity of that statement, made this observation. Remember Lot's wife, Luke 17, 32. Jesus there hearkened us back to a day and time when a woman became a pillar of salt. She disobeyed the God of heaven. She, in fact, looked back to, to the city of Sodom as it was in its presentation of destruction. As she looked back and disobeyed the commandment, she too was turned into a pillar of salt. No wonder as you think about that attribute of salt. Isn't it interesting that the very bottom part of that statement brings us back to what Jesus again commented. Have salt in yourselves. One particular verse that seemingly comes to mind there so readily. Remember, we discussed the abundance of salt. It's easily to be seen. It should also be so in your Christian life and mine. The Christian life is not a life to be lived in private. It's a life that demands matters in private, but it is to be lived openly, publicly. We are to be an example and a shining one at that for those about us. What was it the Lord asserted in Matthew 5.13? Ye are the salt of the world, the Lord said. 
That salt is likened unto a city set on a hill. And it's likened to a candle that burns brightly and gives light to all that are in the house. Your Christian life and mine is to have a positive influence upon those that are about us. Again, you don't light a candle and put it under a cover. You do so with an attribute of giving light to all that are about it. As you and I think again that Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. The characteristic of being the salt of the earth implies that you and I have a responsibility, an obligation. We do so with the beauty and the brightness of Christian life about us. Didn't it Paul, didn't he say in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, that the light of Christ shines brightly in your body and in mine, and in so doing, we're able to reflect to all those about us the precious light of the very nature of Jesus. It may well be that as you come near that final statement, Christianity and its influence to the world, consider how much better this world is because of Christianity. The dark ages and all those ages that went in eras past were clouded in matters of heathenism and paganism, separated from God. All those times and places, so often they worshipped and served what was made rather than the one that made it, Romans 1.25. It might well then be lesson two is immediately before us. This abundance to in which Christianity is to be seen leads us to think of its necessity. Salt is good. Those in the medical profession and the health fields tell us that too much salt can be detrimental to the body. It can lead to high blood pressure, the other effects of hypertension and otherwise. However, might we appreciate and never forget the fact that this salt to which the Lord spoke is good. It's healthful. It is in that regard we might comment that some salt is very needful for the body. The way in which your body utilizes water. Too much water, too little water, but the way in which the water properties and the water matter of the body is maintained, salt is vital for that. Your nervous system, salt is needful. Without a proper balance of that sodium chloride, your nervous system won't work right. Salt is good too from the perspective of what the Lord asserted. Look at some of these features. Those Old Testament sacrifices... Spiritually speaking, God commanded that those food offerings be made with salt, Leviticus 2.13. Those priests, as the particular food, meal offerings, as the King James Version would call it, those had to be offered with salt. If it was made without salt, it was unacceptable. It was not pleasing unto God. May we quickly say that a life that lacks the Christian, the Christian salt within it is a life that also is unacceptable. A life that's not pleasing unto God. Maybe as we think about that salt, it brings us to this interesting consideration. The Old Testament had made reference, and I quote, to the salt of the covenant. Again, Leviticus 2, verses 13 and following. The salt that they put on those sacrifices, that by itself was not the greatest lesson to be learned. That salt was symbolic of the covenant that the salt represented. The salt of the covenant. You and I today have been the recipients of the grandest covenant in all of time, known as the gospel. 
It is that covenant that was emblazoned with the blood of Christ and that covenant that in fact is the perfect covenant in the language of James chapter 1 and also expressed in Hebrews chapter 8. The perfectness of that covenant is highlighted in Hebrews 8 verses 6 and 7. That old covenant, as nice and as powerful as it may have been, if it was perfect, it would never have given way to a better one. But because it was nailed to the cross, Colossians 2.14, and because we now are blessed with this perfect covenant, we realize this covenant is indeed the covenant of the New Testament. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 26.28, this cup, that is with respect to the Lord's Supper, this cup represents the very blood of the New Testament era. You'll notice in light of statements like that one, that Jesus again gave us a commandment. Have salt in yourselves. We cannot overlook it, can we? As individuals then look upon your life and mine, do they see the salt of the New Testament covenant? Do they appreciate that that individual is committed and devoted and determined with the utmost of consideration? to the nature of what Jesus taught and the Lord demands. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 11, as Paul wrote to the Corinthian individuals, he made comments respective of these. He spoke about the nature of life, physical life in the flesh, like you and I live day by day. But he asserted that it had a deeper appreciation for the Christian. And he said that those who see us should see the death of Christ, the life that Christ demands. And maybe the next chapter brings that before us in language like this. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. He says, Thus, in constraint, we are constrained that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. We have here then a statement that the life you and I live should be an open and constant reflection of the one that died for me and the one that died for you. Do individuals see that in my life and yours day by day? Perhaps another passage that asks us about that is Paul's famous refrain of Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Have salt in yourselves. In addition to the chemistry, in addition to the necessity, you might appreciate that one of the things that almost readily comes to mind as we consider salt is that of its taste and the way it improves the taste of food upon which we sprinkle it. Isn't it true that sometimes food can be bland, tasteless, very much unfavorable, but yet with a little salt, that changes. Let's consider for a few moments about the tastefulness of the Christian life and how the Lord, in fact, on several occasions, makes reference to the same. Taste. Even in the Old Testament, you find in passages like Job 6, verse 6, where even that ancient man in the Middle Eastern part of the world understood that salt is a good thing to add some flavor. 
whether it be that lack of taste in the white of an egg or the unsavory nature which then leads one to add salt. Job knew that. You and I still know it well. You'll notice in light of those characteristics, think about what the world should appreciate in Christianity. To be very blunt about it, this world is an unfavorably viewed place from the eyes of God because the world is full of sin. It's full of ungodliness. It's full of iniquity. It's full of selfishness and it's full of choices that reek of the very nature of sin. Wasn't it true that Solomon in the long ago said, There is no man that sinneth not. We read in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, If any man say he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. All it takes is a simple and innocent viewing of almost any newscast and we know the terrible nature of sin and we know the rampant character of it. When the God of heaven looks down on this world, what do you suppose He sees? He sees multiplied millions living in sin. He sees kings and rulers and those in authority putting into effect things that are sinful. He sees individuals daily making hundreds of choices wreaked in sin. You see, sin would be an often appreciated sight, wouldn't it? Contrast that with Christianity. To see an individual who's obeyed the gospel. What does the God of heaven look upon when He sees someone who's chosen to respect the sacrifice of His Son and who's trying to walk day by day in the blessed light of Christianity? Walking in the light of 1 John 1, 7. To walk, and that means not following the flesh, but following the life in Christ, Romans 8 and 1. You notice in Romans 8, 6 that we read about the nature of that contrast seen one more time. In sin we find death, but in Jesus we find life. If you and I were in position then to see what God sees, what a special thing it would be to see the salt of a Christian life. We see finally something that adds a little flavor to this world. For the world is tasteless, sinful, unfavorable, and unsavory in the sight of God in sin. But Christians add some flavor. They add some sweetness. They add the nature and characteristic attached to what's good and pleasant and acceptable. Several verses that lead us in that direction might well start with this one. There have been times that individuals seemingly think that God is this tyrant who enjoys sending people to hell and He enjoys when individuals sin and He takes pleasure in it. But as if it wasn't stated in other places enough, didn't God through Ezekiel state it so well? He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's a sad thing when someone dies and is not saved. And yet, in light of that, think about that salt. Then that is the life that God does find so palatable, so pleasant. It begins, as you and I think, among other things, about the character of speech. So often the world presents and portrays language that is disgusting, language that's profane, language that's in fact vulgar in many ways, and yet to think about that pristine and wholesome speech that is the language of a Christian. I would almost ask, in a week's time, if you can think back seven days ago, how many times this past week have you heard speech 
language in general that was unnerving, unsettling, hurtful. And yet when God hears the sweet language of a Christian, what was said in Colossians 4, 6, you and I speak with language that is seasoned with salt. There's that word again. You and I should speak in ways every day that is to be seasoned with salt, meaning it adds flavor, not sinfulness. It adds character of that which is pleasing, not distaste. Is your language that way in mine? It should be so. You'll notice that that character of language even brings us to think about the other aspects of this consideration of salt. I mentioned the one concerning language. Think about what happens when you burn salt. Sometimes our students in chemistry laboratories are asked to investigate salt. You can, in fact, ignite it. And, of course, in so doing, as a rather strong metal, it'll do so and bring forth a brilliant light. Well, you'll notice the Christian life should also be one that brings a fair amount of light. I would ask you to think about this text in John 8, verse 12. Jesus on that occasion said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. If you and I then follow the light of the world, namely Christ, you and I will embody that light and present it in such an openly visible fashion. To speak about light in that character reminds us of other passages in which that light is contrasted with the darkness of sin. Our precious Savior Himself is described in ways beginning in John chapter 1. You may recall this world sojourned in darkness, but into it came light, John 1 verses 3 through 5. And it says, He brought us out of darkness into light. It is true that many still choose to live in darkness. That seems to be what they desire. But that darkness is without the salt. It's without the precious light that the salt brings. And maybe one final thought would be the very nature of life itself. Yes, it's true, as we learned earlier, that without at least a decent amount of salt, your body won't function. And yet, without the salt of the Christian life, how does the Lord describe us in John 10, 10? He said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Isn't it true that we learn in relation to salt? We ought to have this in ourselves. The attribute of correct language and life and the light that this gospel brings. I suspect one of the other features we'd readily mention about salt is its tendency to make us thirsty. Have you ever been to a restaurant and it's more salt in that particular meal than you're accustomed to, and for hours to follow, you can't drink enough water. It makes you thirsty. Think with me for a moment about the thirst that accords to the nature of the salt of which the Lord spoke. Isn't it true that, in fact, the Christian life should be an open consideration of the same? Let's build that point like this. You'll notice salt makes us physically thirsty. Jesus, however, is said to have the water of life. In John 4, verse 14, as He spoke to the woman there at the well in Samaria, it was to her especially, He commented, if you had known who it was that's here, He could give you the water that brings and springs up into everlasting life. For He is the one that has the water of life. 
she initially thought he was speaking about that well that was there and that Jesus was going to draw physical water for her. He had a much richer, much more profound type of water in mind than that. I might use those particular features to recall to us John 7 verse 38. Three chapters later, as Jesus made another reference to water, He spoke about the Son of Man, namely Himself, having rivers of water of life. Jesus is the one that you see can bring that water of life. Only He has it. And isn't it true that as we then think about salt, it brings us to readily ask some interesting questions. If it's true that salt makes us physically thirsty, then should it not be the case that you and I as Christians should make the world thirst for the water of life? As they see your life and mine and how it's so different from what's typically observed in the world, it ought to lead them to be thirsty for the water that only Jesus can bring and only He can offer. And that water of life that is presented to us in such plainness in the gospel Isn't it true in light of thoughts like that one? That last statement with some additional references might well be in order. You'll notice that there's a clear sense as you and I think about this matter of salt. It can bring into situation what currently is not. We know how often the Bible speaks of thoughts like that one. This person who obeys the gospel is not what he once was. He's cleansed, He's redeemed, He's forgiven. And so it is that this salt can take one that previously was so wretched and so blind spiritually and has caused that one to now have perfect vision spiritually. Isn't it interesting that there was a gentleman born blind. He had an episode with Jesus in John chapter 9. You may recall that on that occasion, here was one that had never been able to see physically. But yet, isn't it ironic? He had keener vision in that chapter than a host of people who'd been able to see physically all their lives. He knew who the Lord was. He was healed by Him, and He, in fact, spoke of Him in greatness. He had better vision than they who were able to see physically. May you and I not be clouded in our vision, but understand that we should help others hunger and thirst for that same water that Jesus only can bring. As you close that slide, what was it that was said about the apostles in Acts 4.13? Here were common fishermen who the Lord had elevated to the status of apostles, and it was said of them, they had been with Jesus. What a simple statement. Could it be said of you and I, he or she has been with Jesus? Do others see that reflection? Is the salt evident? I might suggest one more thought and the lesson will be yours. In addition to these things, no doubt one of the features of salt that surely comes almost immediately to mind is that of its preserving character. As needful as it is for the body and as important as it is for the other attributes we've studied, it's also true that one of the most common usages, at least from from what you and I have observed, is its ability to preserve things. You cure meat, ham meat with salt and other kinds of meats as well. There are other kinds of vegetables. You cure them with salt. They are stored that way. 
And salt has a powerful capability of preserving it until, of course, the proper time to use it. I would submit to you that in addition to that, salt even has antiseptic properties. If you have nothing else about you and you cut yourself, we know if you put salt on it, it stings, it hurts. Salt will at least protect it until you can make proper consideration to it. Think about the attribute of preservation. Salt is a preservative. This world has this nature of sinfulness about it. But you and I have learned that the Christian life, Jesus did say salt is good and have salt in yourselves. You'll notice that these thoughts are worthy of our consideration. This world seems so bent on pursuing these new paths of increasing sinfulness. And yet God encouraged us to think of the old paths, Jeremiah 6.16, and to follow them. You may remember that Sodom was a place. Ultimately, it was destroyed, of course, by the nature of the great salt matter found there as God rained brimstone and fire on it. But in those verses leading up to it, you may remember that Abraham bargained for, for Sodom. Fifty, forty-five, forty righteous there, thirty-five, thirty, twenty. If there's even ten righteous there, I won't destroy it, God said. You'll notice good people were a preserving salt in that place. If even ten could have been found. If even ten would have existed there, God would have spared it. Later in Jeremiah chapter 5, God told Jeremiah, You search with a candle through Jerusalem, Jeremiah, and see if you can find one. See if you can find one man that will serve me. And if you can, I'll spare it. I'll spare it. Jeremiah couldn't find one righteous man in all of Jerusalem. Not one. And into captivity it went. May I ask today, what about the United States of America? How many righteous are there? The salt that's here now is the only thing keeping it afloat. The only thing preserving this place. If we steep into enough sinfulness and there's not enough salt here, what do these verses indicate? If there's a certain number that God can't find, what will He allow to happen to it? I shudder to think of the possibilities. May you and I have salt in ourselves. And may we use these features and aspects and facets as we come to this closing thought. We've learned a number of interesting features about salt, but table salt hasn't been our primary subject. The salt to which the Lord referred was spiritualized salt. It has to do, of course, with the gospel of Jesus Christ and this keen appreciation of living in harmony with His commandments. Because if we don't, hell is in our future. Too frightening to contemplate. Too terrible to imagine. Do you have the salt in yourselves today? Do you have it in you? Do I have it in me? If not, we're going to stand in just a moment and sing a, a song to encourage us. If you don't have that salt in yourself, that salt to which Jesus referred, the salt of obeying the Lord, and that salt that is the pleasing tastefulness that Jesus and God desire, why not make it so today? Why stand at a distance? Why remain aloof from the blessings of Christianity when it isn't necessary? Salt does add taste and flavor. And may I say, tonight's lesson, we'll build on these thoughts and discuss it some more in the context of Leviticus 21. 
Come back and be with us then if you would. For right now, this hymn of encouragement is offered. If you're not a member of the body of Christ, if you're not a Christian, you've never been washed in the blood of the Lamb, today I hope that you're very nervous. I hope you're ready to walk down this aisle. I hope you're ready to beseech Jesus into your life and allow yourself to become a Christian. If we can assist you in that way today, we'd be happy to do it. If you have become a member of the body of Christ, you've been added to the church, but you no longer are faithful, please realize that if the salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. That may well describe your life currently. That salt has lost its tastiness. Your life doesn't reflect what it needs to. If that's the case, I hope you feel ashamed. You've disappointed Jesus. You've let Him down. Why not come back to your first love today? Let us pray with you and for you so that that salt can again be a powerful part of your life. If you need to respond publicly, why not do it now while together we stand and while we sing?